0: This EHIV review program is presented by DKB Med Radio.
1: Trust in the healthcare system and in clinicians is lacking right now. Um, some of the issues with trust have been there and are being increasingly understood in the context of structural racism, discrimination, and health equity. And in addition, some new issues with trust have come to light with the COVID 19 pandemic. Uh, We need to be actively working on our relationships with our patients to build trust and to be worthy of the patient's trust.
0: Delivering high quality HIV care to cisgender and transgender women. Welcome to this edition of eHIV Review. Women at risk, both cisgender women and transgender women, women of color or not. Why do so few get tested for HIV? Why do so few accept prescriptions for PrEP? Why are so many dissatisfied with their healthcare providers? What should clinicians do to better ensure this population gets the HIV prevention and care they need? To address some of these questions, we're joined today by Dr. Kathleen McManus from the Division of Infectious Diseases and International Health at the University of Virginia. For our guest disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, eHIVReview.org, and select the Volume 8, Issue 8 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIB Review. Dr. McManus, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to having this discussion.
0: We've got a lot to talk about, so let's jump right in with our first learning objective. Describe how the National Academy of Medicine's comprehensive care quality domains can help clinicians deliver high-quality care for cisgender women and transgender women who are at risk for or living with HIV. Our learning objective refers to the National Academy of Medicine's comprehensive care quality domains. You refer to them in your published portion of this program, and I would urge all our viewers, listeners, and readers to access that accredited program. But let me ask you to talk to us now, if you would please, doctor, about what those domains are and why they're important.
1: So the National Academy of Medicine, which was previously known as the Institute of Medicine, developed a framework to help guide and measure comprehensive care quality. And the domains of their framework are effectiveness, efficiency, equity, patient-centeredness, safety, and timeliness. And in a high-quality HIV care visit, we wanna ensure that we're addressing as many of these as possible. And in a recent study, actually, Black and Latina cisgender women living with HIV translated these domains into actionable items for HIV providers to improve their quality of care.
0: Black and Latina cisgender women living with HIV. I mean, why? What's what's the connection?
1: So almost 20% of people living with HIV in the United States overall are Black and Latina cisgender women. And this is data from 2019, but it is some of the most recent data that we have. And among all of the cisgender women with HIV, approximately three quarters are Black and Latina. And as an FYI, among transgender women, approximately 20% were living with HIV, including around 62% of Black transgender women and 35% of Latina transgender women. And among all women with HIV, social and economic factors are important, important determinants of health that cause barriers to medical care in general and to HIV care specifically.
0: These comprehensive care quality domains, how did they define them?
1: They translated each domain into actional items that clinicians and clinic teams can follow. For effectiveness, they want knowledge-based care resulting in desired outcomes. For efficiency, they want coordination, continuity, and necessity of care, and assurance that the care proposed is necessary.
0: And person-centered care?
1: For person-centered care, they want care delivery and interactions that are characterized by compassion, non-judgment, accommodation, and autonomous decision-making. They also want safety addressed through attention to avoiding side effects and over-medicalization. They want to avoid medications that aren't needed um, and want to do what's best for the patient's health. Um, They also want to ensure that if there's co-pays or other costs that we're not burdening the patient with unnecessary medical costs.
0: Okay. And timeliness?
1: Yeah, timeliness is an important one. So they want us to limit the wait time or communicate that there will be a wait. Um, so a patient may not have transportation and may have needed to arrange a friend to drive them. So a long wait might be a big issue because they might be inconveniencing a friend who was doing them a favor. Or another patient may have arranged for child care for a specific amount of time. And so a longer wait would lengthen the amount of time that they need child care. So we really need to be mindful about staying as close to on time as possible and that that helps to reduce stress and barriers for our patients. The women in the study also expressed wanting equity as measured by equal access to care and resources. So as clinics and programs work on developing programs for key populations, we need to make sure that we're also making sure that high quality care and and opportunities are available to all the patients in a
0: clinic or a program. Well, thank you for the clarifications, Doctor. Okay, so now with all that in mind, take us to the clinic, please.
1: Okay, so in the clinic, we have a 45-year-old woman with HIV who's presenting for her six-month follow-up in HIV clinic, and she's been waiting 30 minutes past her appointment time to be seen.
0: She's been waiting a half hour to get her six-month follow-up. You wanna give her high-quality HIV care, so walk us through the interactions. Tell us how you'd start the visit.
1: So one of the first things I would do is thank her for waiting and for being understanding uh, when a team member told her that I was running late. Um, It's important to have a team member alert a patient as soon as possible, as soon as you know there might be a wait. Um, you know, if if the patient had a friend help with transportation or had childcare considerations, this allows her to assess what she needs to do um, related to communication with other people. And in addition for thanking her for waiting and for being so understanding, definitely want to apologize um, for running late and make sure the patient knows that it's
0: sincere. Question, doctor. If a team member has already alerted her, why would you address it again? What's the point?
1: Yeah, so even if a team member has already told the patient, I think it's important for the provider to readdress it um, and to communicate about timeliness and that it is something that the clinic strives for um, and that, you know, it's a time where we didn't meet a metric that maybe we were aiming for. Um, It also shows person-centered care, so being respectful of her time and um, the effort that it takes to come to clinic.
0: Timeliness and person-centered care. Uh, Those are two of the comprehensive care quality domains that we talked about. Uh, That's good. So continue the visit for us, if you would, please. What happens next?
1: So next, I would ask about how she's been, how her family's doing. Um, This is one of the benefits of continuity as you get to know your patients, um, really getting to form those relationships. Um, Then I would ask about her concerns and allow her to set the agenda for the visit. Um, and I would make sure to pause for long enough to hear her out. Um, there are studies that show that clinicians interrupt patients after just 11 seconds. Um, and so really, you know, it's driving to listen and, and hear what she has to say.
0: You're listening, and what does she tell you?
1: In this case, this patient actually voices concerns about possible side effects related to her antiretroviral therapy. Um, and these are side effects that I haven't heard before um, so that, you know, I'm taking note of these and listening to her concerns.
0: Side effects that you're not familiar with. That's that's surprising and it could be very challenging. What do you do about it?
1: So I would be honest with the patient, um, tell her that I haven't heard of these type of side effects with her antiretroviral therapy. Um, but that I would review the literature later today or tonight and talk with other colleagues and our clinical pharmacist um, to see if anyone else has been aware of these sorts of side effects. Um, this shows a patient that I'm listening to her, that I know and admit that I don't know everything. Um, it demonstrates humility, um, demonstrates that I'll talk with others and follow up with her, and this all helps to build trust.
0: Trust in the healthcare system? Trust in you as your clinician. Trust in both.
1: Trust in the healthcare system and in clinicians is lacking right now. Um, Some of the issues with trust have been there and are being increasingly understood in the context of structural racism, discrimination, and health equity. And in addition, some new issues with trust have come to light with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, We need to be actively working on our relationships with our patients to build trust and to be worthy of the patient's trust.
0: Good point, doctor. And what you're talking about also shows the importance of providing evidence-based care and coordinated care. Okay, how do you proceed after that?
1: Yeah, so next I tell her that I noticed that her initial blood pressure was high and then that it was still high um, when the team rechecked it. Um, We also discussed that I received records after she saw her primary care provider and that the blood pressure was high there too. Um, This demonstrates coordination of care Um, The patient says that she actually hasn't felt bad and she hasn't felt like she has high blood pressure.
0: And you address that how?
1: So I explain that high blood pressure doesn't necessarily make someone feel bad. Um, We talk about the long-term effects of high blood pressure, that it can um, unfortunately set people up for strokes or for heart disease or for kidney problems. Um, we also talk about the guidelines for blood pressure management, um, and this kind of demonstrates evidence-based care and and using some of the you know best evidence that's out there and following guidelines. Um, the patient is hesitant to start any other medications. Um, she's worried about the necessity of care, wants to avoid side effects, and avoid over-medicalization.
0: She doesn't want to start a BP medicine, even though it's pretty obvious that she needs to. What do you do?
1: I talk about how it's a partnership. Um, I demonstrate no judgment and try to accommodate her, allow for autonomous decision-making. Your shared decision-making is a really important way to build trust. Um, The patient does say that she saw a young man leaving with a blood pressure cuff um, and asked if that's something special for young men in the clinic. Um, And so by being able to offer her one as well, we can demonstrate equitable care and equal access to care and resources. So I offer her a blood pressure cuff to take home and ask that she take her blood pressure at home and then discuss whether she wants to follow up with her primary care provider or with me about the blood pressure readings and a next plan.
0: And to close the visit?
1: So to close the visit, I would ask if there's anything else that she needs from me or the clinic, or if she could benefit from any of our other services or linkage to any community resources. Um, If your clinic has any co-located services, this is an important time to remind patients about those opportunities. Um, And then if your clinic has peer navigation, if this patient's doing pretty well, I would recruit her to be a peer navigator. Or if she was having issues or trouble, I would offer her a peer navigator.
0: And final parting words for this patient.
1: Yeah, at the end of every visit, I try to recap my plan, um, recap my plan for communicating with the patient. Um, so for this patient, we'd be following up on the possible side effects that she was concerned about. So I would ask about the best way to get in touch with her and if there are any times of day that are better to try to reach her. And then discuss when she would come back and then I'm available in that time frame to see her. Um, and all of this helps to also reinforce continuity.
0: Very informative discussion, doctor. Let's summarize what we've been talking about in light of our learning objective. Describe how the National Academy of Medicine's comprehensive care quality domains can help clinicians deliver high-quality care for cisgender and transgender women who are at risk for or living with HIV. What are the key points you'd want our learners to remember?
1: The National Academy of Medicine's comprehensive care quality domains are effectiveness, efficiency, equity, patient-centeredness, safety, and timeliness. For effectiveness, we want to deliver knowledge-based care resulting in desired outcomes. For efficiency, we want to deliver care with coordination, continuity, and we want to make sure the care is necessary. For person-centered care, we want to deliver care and interactions that are characterized by compassion, non-judgment, accommodation, and autonomous decision-making. We also want to deliver safe care through attention to avoiding side effects and over-medicalization. And for timeliness, we want to limit wait time or communicate that there will be a wait. And we also want to deliver care that's equitable as measured by equal access to care and resources. In a high-quality HIV care visit, we want to ensure that we're addressing as many of these as possible. This will help us to build trust and limit creating issues for people, especially cisgender and transgender women, and especially women of color, who may be struggling with barriers to care related to the social determinants of health.
0: Well, thank you, Doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Kathleen McManus from UVA in just a moment. It really is a very simple question. You're seeing me, CEU credits. Have you got all that you need? Because they're still available without charge from EHIV Review. It's the information you need to improve patient outcomes combined with how that new information can be applied to clinical practice eHIV Review delivers. With expert clinical advice and analysis, programs are accredited for nurses as well as physicians, and all programs and credits are provided without charge. Find what you need at eHIVReview.org. And welcome back to this eHIV Review program. We've been speaking with Dr. Kathleen McManus from the Division of Infectious Disease and International Health at the University of Virginia about how using the comprehensive care quality domains published by the National Academy of Medicine can help clinicians deliver high quality HIV care for cisgender and transgender women living with HIV. Let's turn now to our second learning objective, discuss strategies clinicians can implement to improve HIV testing and prep uptake in cisgender and transgender women. Uh, So if you would please, Dr. McManus, Take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario.
1: So now we're in the clinic and a 25-year-old transgender woman presents to clinic for the first time. Um, She's requesting screening for sexually transmitted infections.
0: You shared some of those statistics about transgender women and HIV in the earlier part of our conversation. One statistic, and to me one of the most striking, is that some 20% of transgender women, that's one in five, are currently living with HIV.
1: Yes, that's why it's so important to offer and encourage this population to get tested for HIV. And then if the HIV test is positive, we need to get people linked to high quality and person centered HIV care and get them started on HIV treatment. Um, And if the HIV test is negative, we need to have a discussion about HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. And if it's indicated, offer a PrEP prescription.
0: So let's talk about how a clinician can do that. Your patient, she's a 25-year-old transgender woman, and she wants to be screened for an STI. How do you approach her?
1: So one of the first things that I would do is take a thorough sexual history, um, try to understand if this patient's been diagnosed with sexually transmitted infections in the past, and if she's had an HIV test um, recently, um, and if so, when was the last one that she's had. I would also be trying to figure out um, if she meets criteria for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis um, and start discussing that with her. Um, In terms of HIV testing, um, the Centers for Disease Control Prevention estimate that about 66% of women with an HIV risk factor in the past 12 months have been tested for HIV at least once. And for transgender women, the CDC estimates that probably 96% in urban areas have been tested for HIV. Yeah, that's quite a high number, but the testing rate across the entire United States is unknown. Um, and in 2023, a research team was unable to find any studies that identified strategies to promote HIV testing, specifically among transgender women.
0: So you really do need to be thinking beyond the simple STI screening she requested.
1: Yes, definitely. What I'm really thinking about is what kind of care can I bundle during this visit? Um, And then in the future, where could the patient get bundled care um, for these sorts of issues? So for a cisgender woman, you know, you can get HIV testing at um, uh, gynecology appointments or obstetrics appointments or prenatal appointments. And for transgender women, you can get HIV testing and PrEP. Um, At a site where she might be getting gender-affirming care, or if someone is a sex worker or has injection drug use um, and uses a mobile or drop-in site, there might be possible to get HIV testing and PrEP at those locations as well.
0: In your experience, Dr. McManus, uh, in general, how do patients respond when you try to deliver more care than they ask for?
1: That's a great question. So I think one of the things about these visits is you have to gauge what does the person have the bandwidth for? So do I need to be doing education about HIV testing and PrEP? Or is this a person who is aware of these tests and medications and they're ready to accept this care? So you need to size up kind of where are we starting in terms of this visit? And if someone isn't ready to accept a test or a care, um, do I have peer navigators in my clinic or can I link them with a peer led intervention that might help? Um, It's been shown that PrEP interventions that are designed by and for transgender women often result in better uptake. And so finding the community partners in your area or considering starting a peer navigation program at your clinic might be two ways to to work on this.
0: Very good. But what if the patient is reluctant to get the HIV test? Suppose she says something like, none of my providers ever included an HIV test with STI screening. Uh, Not exactly your words, of course, but with the same meaning. How would you respond to something like that?
1: I would normalize HIV testing. Um, all people ages 13 to 64 are supposed to get tested for HIV at least once as part of routine healthcare. And then for people with certain risk factors, the CDC recommends getting tested at least once a year and whenever a patient is tested for other sexually transmitted
0: infections. HIV testing is a standard part of STI screening and PrEP? Yes, of course. You talk, she listens, she hears what you're saying. And she still tells you, no, she's not going to take it. Do you consider being unable to connect this patient to PrEP a missed opportunity? Do you consider it a failure?
1: No, I don't consider that a failure. This patient might need to hear about PrEP a few times before she's willing to consider taking it or or get a prescription for PrEP. For a little bit of background here, um, prep uptake in the United States among cisgender and transgender women has remained low since the approval of the first prep option, emtricitabine TDF, in 2012. Transgender women have had the additional prep option of emtricitabine TAF since 2019, but the decision to leave cisgender women out of the initial tra- trials of emtricitabine TAF left a gap for cisgender women in prep options that still still persists. Um, However, since late 2021, cisgender and transgender women can both use the cabotegravir extended release injectable suspension for PrEP um, after trials were were completed for both populations. But important gaps still persist. And so due to the limited focus on cisgender and transgender women in HIV prevention research, as well as failures in outreach and marketing, PrEP uptake among cisgender and transgender women has been and remains insufficient.
0: So what can you, as a clinician, do to bridge those gaps?
1: So when I'm in the clinic with my patients, I ask about what they've heard about PrEP um, to ensure that they haven't heard any myths that I can address.
0: Myths about PrEP? Really? What if your patients told you?
1: I've heard many different things. Um, One that comes up often is that there's only one option and that it causes side effects. Um, So this is not true. You know, we have three options that have been studied and approved among transgender women, and they're all very well tolerated. Another myth that I've heard is that once you start, you have to take it forever. Um, And the truth is that PrEP is a medication that people take when they have HIV risk factors. And if their life and behavior changes and they do not have any HIV risk factors, then many people decide to stop the medication. And one more that I've heard um, is that PrEP interferes with gender-affirming hormones, and simply put, it does not. Um, Addressing these myths helps to ensure that patients have correct knowledge about PrEP, um, and that may encourage them to consider starting it. And also, if someone has the correct knowledge about PrEP but decides that it's not for them, they may still help to spread correct knowledge about PrEP and maybe even convince friends that it might be right for them.
0: Oh, talk to us, if you would, please, Dr. McManus, about what else can be done to increase PrEP uptake in cisgender and transgender women.
1: Peer navigators, as well as co-located services, are two possible ways to increase PrEP uptake. In a recent qualitative study, women suggested that PrEP interventions, one, be offered in settings where women are already there and where they feel comfortable. Two, be co-located with services that holistically address women's needs, including child care. Three, include peers to help recruit and educate women. Four, include gender-affirming care. And five, provide same-day PrEP. So co-locating PrEP with other care or services makes it easier for cisgender and transgender women to engage in PrEP care because it doesn't require additional scheduling, travel, coordination, and logistics. In addition, a recent scoping review found that transgender women have different needs than cisgender women and that combining PrEP care with gender-affirming care may better enable PrEP use. PrEP interventions that are designed by and for transgender women often result in better uptake, so find the community partners in your area or work or work on starting a peer navigation program at your clinic.
0: Nice summation and a great discussion. Thank you, Doctor. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing our conversation as it relates to our learning objective. Discuss the strategies clinicians can implement to improve HIV testing and PrEP uptake in cisgender and transgender women. What are the key things you'd want our learners to take back to the clinic?
1: All people ages 13 to 64 should be tested for HIV at least once as part of routine healthcare. And for people with certain risk factors, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends getting tested at least once a year and whenever a patient is tested for other sexually transmitted infections. PrEP interventions designed by and for transgender women often result in better uptake. Find the community partners in your area or consider starting a peer navigation program at your clinic. Co-locating PrEP with other care or services makes it easier for transgender women to in- to engage in PrEP care because it doesn't require additional scheduling, travel, coordination, or logistics. And addressing the safety of PrEP by engaging in discussions about possible side effects or myths that people may have heard about PrEP can help to ensure that they have correct knowledge about PrEP and may encourage them to consider starting it.
0: From the Division of Infectious Diseases and International Health at the University of Virginia. Dr. Kathleen McManus, thank you for joining us for today's eHIV Review program.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure.
0: For eHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehiv.dkbmed.com. eHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Merck & Company, and Vive Healthcare. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. EHAV Review is copyright, with all rights reserved by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.